What's up? This is Perry Noble, and you are about to listen to Mark Driscoll's message from the New Spring Leadership Conference. Mark um, was our second speaker of the day, did an unbelievable job speaking on the subject of suffering. Um, the, the, the quote that just blew me away is when he said, Jesus did not suffer so that um, we would not suffer, but so that we could know him through suffering. If you're out there going through a really tough time, I believe this message is going to impact you deeply. So kick back and enjoy. Do you want God to use you greatly? Do you want God to use you greatly? Then he must wound you deeply. Then he must wound you deeply. For those whom God uses greatly, he must first wound deeply. You will suffer, not just as a Christian, but for Christ. The question is whether or not you will suffer like Christ. Friends will betray you. Critics will criticize you. Enemies will oppose you. Staff will fail you. Health will leave you. And joy will escape you. Those whom God uses greatly must first be wounded deeply. It's the story of the Bible. It highlights the death of Jesus who was wounded so that he might be used. We need to learn to suffer well. You have suffered, you are suffering, you will suffer. In what ways and to what degrees in the providence of God will be chosen by him and received by you. In those moments as you suffer, not because you did the wrong thing, but because you did the right thing. Not because you said the wrong thing, but because you said the right thing. Not suffering because of your folly, but suffering because of your faithfulness. You will wonder, is God sovereign? Yes, he is. Is God good? Yes, he is. Is God punishing me? No, He is not. Our suffering is not punishment for our sin. Christ died in our place for our sins. He suffered. He suffered so that when we are suffering, we would know it is not punishment from a God who is against us. It is correction from a Father who adores us. Those whom God would use greatly, he must wound greatly. One third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament or groaning. Every Old Testament prophetic book includes lamenting with one exception. Today I want to work from Ephesians chapter 3. It is Paul's lament. It is Paul's groaning in the midst of Paul's suffering. Now, the commentators will call this Paul's digression. They will say that he began to pray at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, and then he had a tangential digression, and he picks up his thought with his prayer in verse 14. They would say that, This is tangential. It is not. It is essential, not tangential. The Holy Spirit does not have wasted tangential excursions. Here we're learning not just about what Paul is thinking, but how he is suffering. Because God's word always comes through God's servant. And Paul wants us to get to know him. He says in Ephesians 3.1 that he is, quote, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. 
He is literally in prison, not for any wrong he has done, but before Christ, it is because he is committed to the gospel above all. Sometimes you will suffer for saying and doing the right thing. That is Paul's experience in prison. His reputation is destroyed. The critics are swarming him like bees. Those who are against him see an opportunity to ravage his flock back in Ephesus as he is imprisoned in Rome. The headlines of the day are that that perhaps Paul is not blessed of God. Perhaps he is cursed of God. He, He is not prospering. He is suffering. He is not free. He is in prison. The religious critics are overjoyed. The self-righteous negatives are cheering. He's a prisoner. He's sitting literally in a hole, which is a Roman jail cell. It is dark, it is cold, it is wet, he is hungry, he is lonely, and he does not even have the comfort of his church. He is separated from Ephesus, the church to which he writes. He's suffering. And he knows that his church is suffering as well because if your church loves you, when you suffer, they suffer as well. And so he tells them in 3.13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. How in the world can you suffer without losing heart? Suffering has for us, Paul will reveal, Six great benefits. Suffering costs you so much. Don't waste it. Use it. Redeem it. Sanctify it. If it comes at such a high cost, then use it for a high cause. He tells us, number one, that sanctification comes from suffering in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Pastor Perry said it well, that God does a work for you and in you before he does a work through you. That is the theology of sanctification. It is that the same presence and power of the Holy Spirit continually conforms us to the likeness of Christ. Not sanctification. And here, he says that he is a prisoner of whom? Christ. This is bewildering, is it not? He is actually a prisoner of whom? Whom is he a prisoner of? He's a prisoner of Nero, friends. See, Nero is essentially a king, but above, above a king is the king of kings. And the lesser kings are under the jurisdiction of the highest king. And he's not embittered in prison saying, how in the world could this trouble befall me? My reputation is taken. My life may follow suit. He says, no, Jesus, Jesus has me here. John Calvin was fond of saying that everything comes from or passes through the hand of God. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is what God wants. There is sin and rebellion. But it does mean that ultimately everything can and will be used for God's glory and others' good. And he knows that in this horrendous condition that he finds himself, above it all is Jesus, still sovereign, still good, still at work. And though he does not see it, he knows there is something glorious and good to be had through this season of suffering. My assumption is that as Paul is in prison, he is suffering and he's thinking about the suffering of the man whom Isaiah called his suffering servant. See, as we are suffering, as Paul is suffering, we think about a God who would come to suffer. And as we understand Jesus' suffering, reputation destroyed, life taken, friends abandoned, close friend betrayed, 
crowds opposed, family questioned. We are stunned that our God would suffer. And then we remember things like Hebrews 2.10, which is perhaps the most perplexing line in all of the New Testament where it reveals to us that Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. What in the world does that even mean? Does that mean that Jesus was not perfect? No, he is the second member of the Trinity. He is eternal God. He is perfect. But through God becoming a man and suffering as we are, one of the great themes of Hebrews is that he becomes a sympathetic high priest. You and I as leaders will have a hard time being sympathetic and empathetic toward those who are suffering until we ourselves have suffered. And then God births in us as he sanctifies us, both a love for Jesus who we have caused to suffer. See, the cross is not something simply done for us. It is something done by us. We murdered our God. We caused him to suffer. We come to as we suffer and are sanctified in our suffering, not growing bitter, angry, hostile, not excusing sin in our life, not just trying to tough it out or pretend that it'll all get better. See, what I want us to do is I want us to not feel more deeply in our suffering. I want us to think more deeply in our suffering. Sometimes the suffering hurts so bad, all you can do is feel it. The truth is you will not find your way in it and through it unless you think deeply about it. And as Paul reveals himself to be a prisoner for Christ Jesus, he is thinking about the suffering of Jesus. And as he suffers, he is more cognizantly aware of the suffering of Jesus. And he becomes more compassionate, sympathetic, and empathetic to those who are suffering. Some of you will not be good pastors till you've suffered more. You've not been wounded enough. Friends, here's the truth. Jesus did not suffer so that you would not suffer. Jesus suffered so that when you suffer, you would become like him. Jesus did not suffer that you would not suffer. Jesus suffered so that when you suffer, you might become like him. Number two, suffering comes to us. And here is my second point. Stewardship comes from suffering. Ephesians 3, 2 through 6, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, there's our word of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That's the opposite of speculation. Spirituality apart from Jesus is demonology. What we do not need is speculation, more philosophy, more religion. We need revelation, God to show up and teach us and reveal himself. As I have written you briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, he uses this word a lot in this chapter, is that Gentiles, the non-Jews, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Paul says, As I suffer, I am reminded of what is most important, and that is that I am a steward of a great mystery. Isn't it amazing how suffering is clarifying? Sometimes when you're not suffering, you pursue your calling. When you're suffering, you you are forced to really reduce life down to that which is most essential. You look at the time and the energy and the money and the passion that is wasted on things that are really not primary, they're secondary. For Paul, he says what is primary for him is he is suffering what's on the forefront of his mind, what what has returned as the zeal of his heart is something called a mystery. Now we hear that word mystery and we automatically think, well, that must be something that is unknown. In the Bible in general and in Ephesians, but particularly chapter 3, mystery refers to that which only some people know. See, for you and I, we know the mystery. We know the mystery is that God became a man. 
We know that he lived the life we have not lived, the life without sin, that he died the death. We should have died the death for sin, that he rose to give the gift we cannot earn, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And in Christ, all the nations are reconciled and people groups are made into a new humanity, what Paul calls in Ephesians a new man, a spirit-filled race with a new identity. See, we know this mystery, but you know what? For many, it remains a mystery. They do not understand who Jesus is. They do not understand what Jesus has accomplished. And Paul says, as he is suffering, he is reminded that he he is stewarding a mystery. There are people who don't know Jesus. There are people who do not know Jesus. And Paul says, this is for them a mystery. For you and I, it is a revelation. We know who God is in Christ. For them, it is a mystery. They do not know. And so he says that his whole life now is about this mystery being made known, that that as many as possible would come to me to know and love and serve Jesus. And if right now you're interested in anything other than Christ... You need to suffer more. Because what tends to happen in ministry is we become cause-centered and not Christ-centered. And when we become Christ-centered, we pursue lots of causes, many of them not even bad, but we don't pursue Christ. When you pursue Christ, causes ensue, justice and mercy and help for the poor, but those causes are the result of the revelation of the mystery of Christ. They're not the replacement of the mystery of Christ. And Paul is saying that he, he, as he is suffering, it is clarified for him what is most important, Christ-centeredness. People don't know Jesus. The mystery needs to be made known. Don't ever please, don't ever get tired of saying the name of Jesus and explaining his life, death, burial, resurrection. You may say, but my people know that. What about all the people who don't? For them, it still remains a mystery. Some of you do not understand that you are to steward this mystery that all of your time, talent, and treasure is exclusively to be deposited in the cause of the forward progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As many as possible experiencing new life through him. And here Paul is suffering, and it becomes very clear. For some of you, you will have a hard time Maintaining Christ-centeredness in your ministry and God and his providential kindness will allow you you to suffer so that it clarifies. I was talking to Pastor Judd over dinner last night and they're in Las Vegas and money is way down and the economy has been ravaged and wrecked and they're seeing the greatest harvest they have ever seen. More people are meeting Jesus than ever. I believe it is because what God likes to do is prune before harvest. I had an apple tree in our yard when we first moved in. This apple tree had been there for generations. It was a fairly short apple tree. The branches had grown up. They had extended all the way down to the ground and they had an enormous circumference around what had previously been the trunk of the apple tree. But you couldn't even see it. It was just covered. It was just covered in in branches that had few if any leaves And the whole first year we were there, there was never one apple on the tree. Not one apple. This was a dead, worthless tree with all of the resources going out to the new limbs and the sucker branches. They're sucker Christians as well, you know. And all they were doing is taking the life and nourishment that could have went to new branches to produce a new harvest. To use the language of the Bible, the tree was not stewarding its life well. A lot of your churches are like that. So I wish we had a greater harvest. Well, then you need a deeper pruning. So we hired a gardener and he came in. He said, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to basically chop nearly every branch off the tree. 
And this tree was greatly reduced in size. And he said, if the tree lives, some of your churches need to come to that decision. If the tree lives, it will then have a great harvest because it will re-steward and redirect all of its energy and life toward new branches that bear fruit. And he cut off all the bad branches. That tree was almost entirely bad branches. Your ministry is filled with lifeless branches. People, things, programs, technologies, ideologies, traditions that are fruitless. Maybe one day it was a very fruitful branch and it has just been untended. And what you're proverbial tree of ministry does not need is new branches and more fruit. It needs a good gardener who can prune. You need to leave. This needs to stop. We need to repent. This needs to go away. This needs to die. And suffering, suffering is the the means by which God prunes his church. Suffering is the shears in the hands of Jesus and the church leaders. You need to know where to cut. You need to know when to cut. You need to know how to cut. And if the tree lives, then it has a great harvest. But then you have to prune again. And ministry is all about pruning and harvesting and pruning and harvesting. That's why Jesus, the great storyteller uses viticultural metaphors and horticultural metaphors to talk about the church. He is the vine and we are the branches. That's what he's talking about. And Paul realizes it here as he's suffering that God has really taken the shears to his life. His freedom has been cut. His reputation has been cut. His his friendships have been cut as he's far away from home. His life may be cut. What he says is, I just want to steward the life and the mystery that God has given me. I want to produce as large a harvest as I possibly can because Jesus alone is worthy. Number three, serving comes from suffering. Ephesians chapter three, verse seven of this gospel, this good news about Jesus. I was made a minister or literally a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. As Paul is suffering, he is thinking about serving. Suffering is a wonderful opportunity if we redeem it, if we capture it, if we embrace it. It's not punishment from an angry God, but correction from a loving Father. And I know when it hurts, your first instinct is to flee. Don't feel more deeply, think more deeply about your suffering, particularly when you're suffering. And as Paul is contemplating his own suffering while in a Roman jail cell, he remembers that he is a minister, he is a servant of Jesus. And again, Jesus is our suffering what? Servant. Isaiah, who... Some would even call the fifth gospel. From Isaiah 40 through 66, the entirety of that portion of his great prophetic book is about this person, the suffering servant. Jesus is our suffering servant. He is our suffering minister. And as Paul is in prison, he's thinking about suffering and servanthood and how Jesus has served him, how Jesus continues to serve him and how Jesus himself suffered. So as we suffer, we have this wonderful opportunity to like Christ be perfected through our suffering and ask ourselves, how is it that my God not only would suffer, but he would serve me through his suffering. You can serve people through your suffering. When you're weak, you're strong. I know you don't believe that. God uses the simple to confound the wise, the weak, to shame the powerful. I know you don't believe that. You want to get through your suffering so you can get back to serving. 
I am telling you that the suffering is the means by which God will allow you to do great serving. I saw this recently at our church, a young woman, brave young woman, volunteer in our counseling department, got up on a Sunday to give her testimony. And as she looked out, she said, you know, when I was raped the first time, I could look in the room and tell you every woman who shared her story. All of a sudden, this woman talking about her suffering was serving all the women who shared in her suffering. I saw it this last Sunday, the campus pastor where I preach, he had his wife battling with a multi-year fight with cancer. She died. He buried his own wife. Men, nothing is as hard as preaching your wife's funeral. So have your whole marriage prepare for that day. And a man came up to me and he was distraught with his wife and he said, this week my wife was diagnosed with stage four cancer. They're small group leaders of ours. I said, you know what? Pastor Bill, his wife, they were about your age. She got diagnosed with cancer. She battled it for years. She died loving Christ and he preached her funeral. How about if I introduce you to him? Please do. Serving comes out of suffering. We, we learn about the suffering of Jesus as we serve. We find new ways to serve those who are suffering. And also we learn to appreciate those who serve us. When you're suffering, there are things you cannot do for yourself depending upon the degree of your suffering. And as other people serve you, you become more humble, you become more thankful, you become more loving, more considerate, more attentive, more encouraging. You more deeply appreciate the sufferings of Jesus as the means by which he served you. And as a result, you start suffering, you start serving in a way you've never served before. Your suffering could be God's providential gift to you to serve more people more deeply than ever. Number four, our speaking comes from our suffering. Isn't it amazing? This is all the stuff they try to teach you in Bible college, right? How to be sanctified, how to be a good steward and use the resources, how to serve others, how to speak. And Paul says, well, unless you've at least gotten a bachelor's degree in suffering, that's all a bit of a waste of time. Speaking comes from suffering. Ephesians 3, 8, 9. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? Part of the grace of God to him is is suffering. You would say, no, no, the grace is the spiritual gift of apostleship which God bestowed upon him. Yes, and that's why he's suffering. To what? To preach. How many of you guys want to be preachers? If you don't suffer, you're a worthless preacher. You just be another hard hearted, stiff necked, rebellious, judgmental, religious referee in the lives of hurting, suffering people. You'll just load them up with burdens to carry, not even seeing that they've already got a broken back. The problem in the South is not that there is a lack of preachers. There's a lack of preachers who have suffered. It changes your preaching when you suffer, you know. You speak differently to people and about them. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan. Here it is again of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Your speaking comes out of your suffering. If you don't talk about your sin, you will have the most worthless culture of a church. Preachers who preach repentance but don't practice it, they create a religious culture that is toxic. Preachers who preach repentance but don't practice repentance create a religious culture that is toxic. 
You talk about everyone else's sin and suffering, not your own. Beware of the preacher who's always the hero of all of his own illustrations. Beware of the preacher who only tells you about things he used to struggle with. Beware of the preacher who seems as if he is almost Christ-like in perfection. Paul is not preaching out of his perfection. He's preaching out of his imperfection. He's not preaching out of his wins. He's preaching out of his losses. He says that he is the what? I am the what? The very least of all the saints. You know what's interesting? If you look at the progression of Paul's writing through the course of his life, it seems like he's getting worse, not better. I wrote this down. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he calls himself, quote, the least of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Okay, there's 12 of us. I'm number 12. A little while later, here in Ephesians 3, 8, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. Of the billions of Christians, I'm the worst one. A little while later, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says he is, quote, the chief of sinners. See, it doesn't look like he's being sanctified. This is like a reverse testimony. <laughs> Say, what is happening? Here's what is happening. As Paul gets closer to Jesus, he realizes how unlike Jesus he is. The longer you walk with Christ, the more sinful you see yourself as being. You're more aware. What this leads to is it changes how you speak. You don't deny sin. You speak of it more boldly than ever because you're more aware of your own and so you're happy to point it out to others as well as demonstrate it in your own repentance. And Paul is a preacher Speaking of his own sin. Speaking of his own sin. I'll say it again. Preachers who preach but don't practice repentance create a toxic religious culture. Some of you right now, you don't have a programming problem. You don't have a theology problem. You have an anti-gospel culture problem. To where the world is filled with good guys and bad guys instead of bad guys and Jesus. Now, let me say this. Paul here says that he is preaching the mystery of Jesus to the Gentiles. He's doing so as a Jew. And when Paul is talking about his sin, that he is, quote, least of all the saints, and he's least of the apostles, and he's chief of sinners. Did Paul ever get drunk? Not that we could tell. Was he a fornicator? No indication of that whatsoever. All of his sin was religious sin. Religious sin. When you preach, you must preach repentance to the Gentiles, repentance to the Jews, repentance to the non-Christian, repentance to the religious. If you want a toxic religious culture, tell the sinners to repent of sin, but forget to tell the religious people to repent of religion. You will then convert sinners into religious people. And the religious people will cheer, yes, please, please, please yell at the homos and the drunks and the sluts and the whores and the addicts and the thieves. It was the religious guys who murdered God. Paul says in Philippians, a little excursion on his testimony, that he was very, very, very religious devout, zealous, committed. All of his sins were religious. All of his sins were religious sins. 
as he talks about his sin while he is suffering, he realizes that as a religious person, he caused other people to suffer. Religious people tend not to suffer. They tend to cause others to suffer. And they add to their suffering. They don't bring the healing balm of the gospel. They bring the stinging lash of the law. I was at a conference not long ago with another pastor. We were in a conversation and one of the guys was talking about a gal in his church who sleeps around and has all kinds of sexual sin and she's a real case. She was sexually abused, molested. She needs a lot of help. She suffered a lot. We started talking about sexual abuse victims. If you took all the sexual abuse victims, rape, molestation in my church, we'd still have a mega church of sexual abuse victims. We started talking about how this is an epidemic and people are suffering and pastors and leaders and churches aren't talking about it. And all religious people say is, don't have sex before marriage. Don't have sex. Okay, great. We know that. But what if you're raped? What if you're molested? What if you're abused? One pastor's there. He's got a large, very large church. I said, well, how many abuse victims do you have in your church? He says, well, thankfully, it's not a huge issue in our church. I only know of one woman who was raped. No. That tells me of a religious culture where people can't talk about their suffering. Because I know for a fact if I stood up in one of his services with 800 people in the room at a time and said, how many of you have been sexually abused? More than one hand's going to go up. But see, it's a religious culture. You don't talk about your sin. You don't talk about your suffering. You don't talk about your shame. So for some people, even though they're Christians, the gospel is still a bit of a mystery. They're not sure how Jesus, who suffered and was abused and physically restrained and damaged and wounded and hurt could possibly help them. Religious sin is what Paul's repenting of. Religious sin. How much religious sin are you tolerating in your own life? How much religious sin are you tolerating in your church? Say, we tell everybody, here's some sins, don't commit them but they've got a whole other list of religious sins. Legalism, moralism, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, arrogance. You wonder why Paul's in prison? Part of the reason is he's preaching against religion, not just sin, but religion. If you preach against sin and religion, you will find yourself being opposed by the most interesting people, right? The fornicator and the fundamentalist will all of a sudden align against you. And there is a third way between religion and sin. It's the way of Jesus, humility, repentance, and faith. I have grave concerns. American evangelicals are stupid. You know Glenn Beck's a Mormon? Glenn Beck's a Mormon, friends. He doesn't think Jesus Christ is the only God. I don't get into politics, but I get into the gospel. When he talks about Obama's theology as a Mormon, even if I don't agree with Obama's theology, he's a Mormon. It's like an alcoholic criticizing AA. You're like, I, whether or not I like AA, you, you do not have the moral high ground on this issue. Bizarre. Bizarre. Leading people in the singing of Christian hymns. Amazing grace. What the hell do you know about Amazing Grace? You're a Mormon. You're a Mormon in sacred underbritches. 
Oh, but he's a heterosexual Mormon. Okay, so he gets cuts into the line to hell. He still doesn't know the mystery. It's freaking ridiculous. Oh, but he waved a flag. Oh, great, great. I love America. I'm not anti-American. I think the best thing that could happen to America is uh, people meet Jesus. Yeah, that's what I think. You're speaking, and you, you talk like this, you'll suffer. I will. Oh, thou shalt not judge. Well, then don't judge me. I'm just, just saying. Point number five. Showing comes through suffering. Ephesians 3, 10 through 12. So that through the church, ah, now we're there. How many of you love the church? The church, the church, the church. There it is. The manifold wisdom of God may now be made known or shown to the rulers, that's demons, and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. History is not about kings and queens and kingdoms and politicians and wars. It's, It's about this little group of marginalized people called the church. This predestined, elect, little ragtag bunch of nobodies on whom the Father has set his affection. It starts with Abraham, who's a nobody, nowhere, doing nothing. Because it's always only of grace. And a promise is made that through him would come a seed. Galatians says singular, not plural. It's not Israel, it's Jesus. If you're like, I love Israel because it's the seed of Abraham. No, I love Jesus because he's the seed of Abraham. Pray for Israel and tell them about Jesus. Otherwise, it'll end up like Glenn Beck. It's all going to go bad in the end. Just more religion. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, and he is the blessing to the nations of the earth. This promise is made that from nobody nowhere doing nothing, and out of a barren womb, God would bring forth a people who would be his own possession, that from them would come one who is the seed of Abraham, the true Israel, Jesus Christ, and that he would, through his death, burial, resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, bring into existence the church, and the church is the, the, the witness of the glory and the grace of the mystery to the nations and to the powers. Man, I hate it when people criticize the church. I hate it when people ignore the church. I hate it when people refuse to go to church and claim to be Christians. I I hate it when people despise the church and they're bitter against the church. Are you? Some would say, well, the church is filled with sin and sinners. I know, that's why I'm there. There's a whole lot of work to do. And God is using the church to work on me and my own judgmentalism and my own hypocrisy and my own self-righteousness and my own holier-than-thouism. The church is a family, and like every family, we annoy one another. That's what being a family is all about. And the question is this. How in the world? How, where is Paul? Paul's talking about the victory, the ruling, the reigning, the authority, the majesty of the resurrected King of kings, Lord of lords, high and exalted, seated on a throne. The whole of Ephesians is about Jesus in glory, Jesus in majesty, Jesus conquering over the powers and principalities. Say, well, where is he? Jail. Were you expecting the great victory of Jesus to result in a greater gift for Paul than prison? This is this is disorienting. This is where the Bible has all of those frustrating verses. You're more than a conqueror. Greater is he who is in you. How's it going? Bad. 
Here's what Paul is saying. Paul does not treasure his health, his freedom, his job, his reputation, or his relationships above and beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he has joy, even though everything has been taken from him, because what has not been taken from him is what he treasures most deeply. And in this context, even though he can't go to Ephesus, what he says is, I can go to the Father because of the Son, and I have access to him who loves me and whom I love. And Paul knows that if something as pathetic as the church could actually bring the gospel to the nations, that all the glory would go to God. Because the only way the story could possibly be told is that nobody's from nowhere who were doing nothing brought good news to the nations of the earth. And see, it starts with Jesus, who's a nobody from nowhere. And he suffers. And he atones for the sin of the world. It's out of his suffering that Paul realizes that the church is where Jesus' grace, Jesus' love, Jesus' mercy is shown. To use the language of John Calvin, the invisible God is made visible. And that happens in our churches. Don't have an idealistic, unrealistic view and portrait and picture of the church. Love the church like Christ loved the church. And he what? Laid down his life for her. The church caused Christ to suffer. The church will cause you to suffer. Is your church a place where suffering people can be shown the love of Christ. And he closes by saying that number six, sustaining comes from suffering. So I ask you not to lose what? Heart over what I am suffering. There's our word for you, which is your glory. So let's just be honest. You probably don't need another program right now. Maybe later. You probably don't need more tips on how to be, oh, I don't know, sanctified or steward your resources or serve those who are hurting or speak a better message or show people tangible ways that God loves them through good deeds and mercy and care. You don't need those things today. Today, you need to learn how to suffer well. And if you suffer well, those other aspects of your ministry will come into being and they will flourish and God's grace will be upon them. So, dear friend, let's take what has been to this point somewhat theological and theoretical and ask this question. Who has betrayed you? Who has abandoned you? How are you suffering? What are you worried about? Who has shipwrecked their life and you are devastated? Whose funeral are you preparing to preach? What loss are you reeling from? What critic has made it their life's mission to ensure that you suffer? How has your reputation been maligned and misrepresented? How has even your spouse failed you? When you needed comfort, they did not comfort. When you needed friendship, they were not present. How has your staff neglected you? What is it like to be a pastor without a pastor? How does it feel to fire people that you still love? Who is leaving your church right now that you are worried for?
How is your health? Your weight, your blood pressure, your sleep. How many of you are struggling with temptation to sin? How many of you are fantasizing about quitting? How many of you wonder if God even cares? What is it? Who is it? And how will you use it? For God's glory, others' good, and your joy. It is a gift that God has given you. Receive it. Use it. Suffer well. Those whom God would use greatly, he would wound mightily. Father God, I pray for my friends. Lord Jesus, you are our suffering servant. I pray that you would help us to suffer well. I thank you for Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit and wanting to move from theology to prayer, being redirected toward that which is not tangential but essential. It's not just our theology and our prayer life and our ministry. It's our suffering. It's our suffering that teaches us of your love and of your sacrifice so that we might love and sacrifice as you did. God, I pray for those who are suffering today. They have someone or something that the Holy Spirit has highlighted for them, and it hurts. God, theirs is a season of pruning. It feels like the shears have just devoured them. They feel like their limbs are just severed. And if they live, they will bear much fruit. I pray that, Lord Jesus, they would, by your grace. And I pray, Lord God, that our suffering would be captured as an opportunity for the mystery to be revealed to us, in us, and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.